Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with the co-founder of OnePack, Steve Anden. A lot of businesses still consider environmental regulations and sustainable practices as a challenge to their growth opportunities. For Steve Anden, it's his company's greatest competitive advantage. As CEO of OnePack, Steve has spent the last 15 years driving the circular economy and creating the logistics industry of the future. He has received countless accolades and even industry awards for innovation and creativity, and as of last year, was listed on the Inc. 5000. Few of us would ever think logistics can be carbon efficient or even carbon neutral. And that's exactly the kind of thinking Steve has consistently disproven through OnePack's commitment to sustainability above all else. OnePack is growing like crazy. So Steve, let's get right to it. Thank you for being on the podcast, my friend. Good morning, Drew. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. Well, this is a world I'm unfamiliar with, so I'm excited to, to learn more about it. And I'd love to know... How did you get into this? I actually got into this industry almost by accident. Um, I have something of a serial entrepreneur and I had a software company before this one that um, catered to the hospitality industry. And when we were uh, selling that company, actually, we had some computer equipment that um, was still perfectly good and had an opportunity to resell it. So we actually listed it on eBay uh, basically liquidating our old computers. And I had the thought at the time that this is a real nuisance to have to pack this up and ship it. Um, I threw out the box, you know, years ago for all those old computers, um, but they still had a lot of value. And so it really, for some reason, started to keep me up at night to think about there's an opportunity here um, in terms of packing and shipping something that's used. And I don't want to have to go to a, uh, you know, UPS store or, or FedEx location to buy a box and packing material and all that, especially if I have multiple items. Um, so the original concept was that I could partner with eBay to be able to send out shipping supply kits uh, while things were listed. So if you listed your old computer, Um, While it was being sold, you could get a box to ship it in. And by the time you sold it, you could just uh, slap a prepaid label on there and off it would go to whoever bought it. Um, So that was sort of the the original idea. And I wrote a proposal to eBay, actually, and said, you know, this is something that eBay should offer. And lo and behold, I got it to the right person there. And they said, that's absolutely right. That has merit. And so I flew out to eBay a few times. We created a business plan where um, people who were selling at, you know, as it turned out to be electronics, uh, as the first primary category. So all, all things, computers, servers, etc., um, needed a, a good sturdy box and proper packaging material to ship it in. And so, uh, created a fulfillment operation. I found a warehouse that could be able to do some kitting and fulfillment manufacturing. Um, I'm a IT person. So I put together a lot of the, the user interface and the connectivity on the back end. And it started out as a a program with eBay where we would um, just get orders through people making listings on eBay. And we were pumping out boxes out of a warehouse with uh, packing material, tape, like a complete kit. And I thought, well, this will be a great little under the radar business that um, nobody even knows about that (laughs) that just takes orders for shipping supply kits. Um, Next thing we knew, the the phone started to ring and uh, we got a lot of referrals through some of the executives at eBay who worked with companies that were in the aftermarket. And we started to find out that there was this booming industry around collecting things and reselling things, the the whole world of the aftermarket, um, which has translated into today's real push about sustainability. So uh, we actually found some rather large companies. Uh, One of them, for example, is Dell that uh, found us through that connection. And we've been working with them ever since to develop their take back and sustainability program for both consumer um, and commercial uh, recycling, resale, lease returns, everything to do with things, all things re, 
coming back. Um, and so it's, it's turned into a whole full service logistics company that's focused on collecting rather than distributing. Most logistics companies are about um, getting things delivered to you. We're about picking them up. And so we're sort of closing the loop on the circular economy and we've created a whole platform that uh, <clears throat> allows things to come back just as easily as they ship out. So that's the company story. Man, that is super cool. What I'm curious about first, I have several questions, but the first is when you take your idea initially to eBay, yep. why did they decide to basically allow you to fulfill that versus take the idea and find a way to do it in-house? Because I took initiative and said I would do it. And what I, what I found, it's one of the biggest lessons I've learned as a entrepreneur is um, so much of success is just related to doing it, taking action and doing it. If you're the person who's standing there saying, I will do this and you don't have to do anything, I will do it. Uh, in their case, the, the arrangement was, if I do this, will you market it? And they said, well, sure, we've got the ability to market it. If you want to handle the whole back end operation. Now at the time, remember, I was just one person with a piece of paper in my hand that was a proposal. Um, right. And so I, I got one of the largest companies in the world to say, yes, we'll, we'll market this if you'll go put together the whole back end operation. So I was running around finding a warehouse and a box manufacturer, a plastics manufacturer, a tape manufacturer, trying to put together this whole operation in the back end. And I had uh, eBay standing there basically waiting for the baton saying, as soon as that's ready, we'll, we'll connect it. Um, so, and from there it, it took off. But the, the big lesson from a, a business standpoint, entrepreneurial standpoint is just do it, just begin. How did you get them to, or why do you think they took you seriously? How did you earn their trust as just a one man? You still had, like you said, to go out and figure so much, so much out, even assemble the team and the warehouse and that kind of thing. How did you earn their trust, do you believe? Uh, I earned their trust, I think, a couple of different ways. One of the biggest ways um, well, first of all, being, being entrepreneurial and hungry for the business, uh, they, they, I think, respected that. But in terms of your ability to execute, I think the biggest convincing thing that you can do is to have a good-looking uh, website, something that proves that you understand that, that the user experience is important. Um, we put together the, the first investment that I made of time and resources was to create um, a website that looked like it was a really big company, even though at the time it was, it was just me. And, uh, you know, so finding people that understand graphic design, user experience, especially, there's nothing more important than design. I think that people um, make, make very quick judgments on what they trust based on what they see. And if they see something as well put together, well thought out, uh, properly designed, I mean, you think about any website that you go on, or app that you download or whatever, you trust it based on, does it feel right? Does it, does it work? Does it look good? Uh, and so that's, that's, I think, where you have to start. To me, it's just, it's no different than anything else to do with, um, you know, presenting yourself personally or whatever. There's the user experience, you know, UX is, is where it's all at. Yeah. So after you get their, their interest and they say, you know, go build it and we'll market it, what was the biggest challenge to go and assemble uh, the team or the, or, or the process, the product? What was the biggest challenge to actually get that up and running to start partnering with eBay officially? Uh, it was being under-resourced in terms of, you know, at the time I had absolutely zero capital. Uh, and for a lot of the things involved in getting any business off the ground, if you're going to make the numbers work, there's economies of scale. And so, for example, if you're, um, you know, in our case, if we were going to be shipping out cardboard boxes, um, you can't just buy, you know, 10, they're going to be too expensive each if you buy 10. Uh, on the other hand, if you buy 100,000, you're going to need plenty of money and then a place to put them all, right? So there's economies of scale issues um, that require capital. There's... Uh, I think the, the biggest obstacle for, for most startups is to say, how can I uh, produce something that 
um, I can make the numbers work if I can't buy at scale, right? So that I think was was definitely the biggest obstacle out of the gate is it's all about the numbers. Do you have any capital resources? And most people I think have no idea how to get any capital for their businesses. Um, it's a it's not certainly not something that's taught in business school. Um, I definitely sure, sure. found that. Uh, I wish it, I wish that it was. I've actually done some, uh, you know, graduate school lecturing and uh, subsequently to try to bring some of that knowledge to light because I can tell you most college professors have no experience in that kind of a thing and how it really works. Um, so basically, the short answer is undercapitalization is usually a big, big part of. Uh, the challenge out of the gate. Did you did you end up going out and raising capital? Was that your solution to that challenge? I did. Well, but I I went through the initial period of time of just uh, doing it myself. And so uh, you do when you have a, a business dream, you'll do whatever it takes. Um, I did not go directly to like friends or family uh to you know borrow money i i took out loans on my own i took out sba loans i used credit card lines whatever i could do to get it off the ground uh, because i knew that even raising a small amount of capital from any you know private individual investors or for anyone they're going to want to see more than just an idea they want to want to see a little bit of traction so uh i got the business to about its first hundred thousand dollars in revenue um just out of my own pocket and so that was not easy to do because, you know, when you're running, if you don't have any, any resources to begin with, you're running up lines of credit, you're taking a big risk. Yeah. How did you handle <laughs> psychologically and emotionally? How did you handle, handle the risk element, the risk tolerance of that, of that initial hundred thousand um, dollar mile marker? <laughs> I know your listeners can't see me, but uh, I, I am bald and that's why. <laughs> stress. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, there's plenty of stress that goes with it. I think um, I, I remember reading a book called For Entrepreneurs Only years back. And the opening line of that book is welcome to fear. And I think that's um, one of the things that you just have to embrace is that this is not going to be easy. And I think... Uh, most people are too inclined. Most entrepreneurs, I think, are too inclined to want to run out and, and make a pitch to a, a VC firm. And they think that they're just going to get several million dollars in capital and set up a fancy office and hire people. And I think that's been sort of glamorized uh, by the press and by Hollywood. Um, and reality is you're probably going to have to take out a cash advance on your credit card at 22%. You're going to stare at the ceiling all night. Um, for a long time until you get your, your business rolling. Um, and the risk is just going to be something that you have to take. Uh, and as the founder, you're going to have to take it. And it never goes away. Um, people, even as you start building a team, your name is going to be on that dotted line. When you sign that business loan or you sign for that office space rental or you sign uh, anything, there's going to require a personal guarantee. Until the even when the company gets big, um, it, it's there. Any kind of lender or financier is going to want a personal guarantee. They want one throat to choke, and as the founder, that's always going to be you. So even after I've been in, in running this company for several years, um, everything is still me when it comes to the risk. When they're they're looking for that <laughs> signature on a lease or, or or you know opening a bank account or whatever, it's always going to be your name as the founder. So you just have to get used to it. Yeah. Was there anything or anyone that helped you navigate that early season and and not give up and keep believing in what you were doing? Um, I mean, I've had a lot of good influences. I've read a lot of good books. I think uh, as anybody listening to this probably can relate that if it's in your blood, it's in your blood that if you want to be an entrepreneur, you want to be a founder, um, you're going to have, you just built a little differently that you're going to take those risks that other people won't take. Um, and that I think is the difference between people who start things and the rest of society is if you're willing to take that risk. Um, I can't point to any one particular uh, person or resource. I've listened to 
uh, a lot of different um, audio programs, you know, things produced by the Nightingale Conan Company or uh, what's now on Audible. There's just so many good resources for keeping you encouraged. Um, I've tried to talk to as many successful uh, entrepreneurs as I could meet personally. Um, but I think you need almost a daily diet of <laughs> uh, motivation and, you know, programs like this one that you're creating uh, to keep people, you know, give something for people to listen to while they're in the shower or while they're on their way to their office or whatever, every day, um, you're never done with uh, needing inspiration and motivation, no matter how big your company gets. Absolutely. Absolutely. What, what was um, maybe the most important skill that you either had or had to learn in that early launch phase of this business? I would say um, in the early launch phase, the most important skill, I think it's finding, finding the resources, finding the people and resources that can help you. Um, I remember one of the biggest things that I had a hard time getting my head around early in my entrepreneurial days was that there were people, you know, being perpetually under-resourced and not having enough capital. Um, I think you kind of assume that the whole world is a place of lack and realizing that there are people who have more money than they need and they're looking for something to do with it. They're looking for investments. Um, was sort of a, a paradigm shift in thinking of realizing, hey, if there's a person who's super wealthy and they're looking for startup deals, well, your job as an entrepreneur is to appease them and to give them a place to put some of that capital. Um, and so basically finding people who uh, are sympathetic to the cause and they're interested in, in supporting your efforts, um, is it was a key skill. Uh, you can't do everything yourself. Um, and you, you've got to surround yourself with people who you can <clears throat> collaborate with and, and uh, join with in some capacity who can move your venture forward. Yeah. Yeah. So if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like the skill is actually getting out of this survival mentality where everything is scarcity thinking and actually beginning to say, hey, there is options. There are people there are resources i just got to go find them and then it sounds like you had to learn the skill of once identifying those opportunities of selling yourself you know earning that trust selling the opportunity to be able to access those resources is that is that right yes absolutely um i i think that the biggest thing is is making that mental shift from a a, a scarcity thinking to an abundance thinking um, because it, the more you have that abundance thinking, the more you will attract it to you. Um, and the more you believe in scarcity, that's what you'll see too. Absolutely. We find what we're looking for, right? Yes, <laughs> like, you absolutely do. If we're, look, if we're looking for reasons to play it small and scared, we'll find it. If we're looking for reasons to, to uh, play the game big and, and, and do big things and overcome you know, challenges, we're going to find the way to get there, right? Yes. Absolutely. And it's amazing how it's, it's the same world either way. It's the, the glass half empty, half full kind of a thing. Um, but I, I find it runs much deeper and more profound than that because there's, uh, there's a real energy there uh, around can, do you attract or are you, do you come off as trying to force? And uh, mm. I think that the more any of us can learn how to attract uh, people and resources and energy to our business ventures and to our ideas, they, they really take on momentum and a life of their own. Um, and I think that is a, the biggest challenge as an entrepreneur is to maintain that energy of the positivity and the momentum and the, uh, the mindset which will attract resources and customers to you when you're dealing with the fear and the risk at the same time, uh, because the fear and the risk, yeah. the, the stuff that keeps you staring at the ceiling at night, um, it's hard to shake that off in the day because you need to shake it off if you're going to attract the resources um, and energy to your to your venture. So you're you're constantly dealing with that sort of two sides 
uh, of your mind, the one that's uh, panicking and worrying about making payroll and the other one that's saying, uh, I want to go big time and we're going to crush it with this thing. So um, it's a it's a daily challenge to force to, to say I'm I'm going to put my mind in the right space and continue to attract <clears throat> the energy and the support to this venture that I need. Yeah, I want to I want to talk a little more about that. I don't think we've really dove too deep into that yet on the podcast, but we're you know here's how I think about it, and then I want to know how you think about it. Is we can get real woo woo with it, right? Like talking about energy, talking about you know which I think could be real to a lot of degrees. But if I think practically, I've been in a conversation with somebody that I can tell is so eager and so. Uh, like you said, forcing it. They're not attracting, they're forcing a moment that you kind of repel against it. You can kind of sense their desperation. Right. You can sense their over eagerness and it causes you to not trust them. And I've been in other conversations where however the person is, however their, their self-confidence is or their relaxed nature, it causes you to lean in and you want more. You want to know more about them. Is that is that kind of what we're talking about or is it more, is it deeper than that? Do you think? It's, it's absolutely the case that, um, you know, there's just sort of the general concept in, in the world that the more you, you push, the more things kind of avoid and the more you kind of sit back and remain confident that you can pull things towards you. And I think it's it's really the hardest thing for people and businesses to find that correct balance of when do you push versus just say, look, I'm confident in what I'm doing. Um, I, I feel like the pushing comes from fear and the pulling comes from confidence. And if you really mm. know that what you're doing is the right thing to do and that it's going to work, you will have that calm confidence and what you need will get behind you. What there, there will be people that can sense that confidence, and they'll, um, they'll get get involved with your with your company. And uh, I think the more you act panicky and fearful and trying to push things, um, you'll just create more more of the same. Do you have any examples that come to mind of either being displayed, where maybe you you pushed and you saw? saw that backfire or that you felt confident and you saw that pull effect happen in your business? Let me think of a good example there. Was eBay a good example of you coming in with confidence and getting somebody way above your weight to take you seriously and, and, and be attracted to you? I think the best example that I can think of is in the early stages of when I decided to raise some capital. Uh, I remember that I was going to give a pitch before sort of a mini shark tank type of a group of private individual investors. And I was, I was really working so hard on trying to create a, a PowerPoint deck that was very, very literal and very um, it just felt like I was forcing it. I was trying to make sure I was following the templates of how you create the best PowerPoint deck. And I was making sure I answered all the questions and I had little diagrams for everything. And it just felt like very, very forced and contrived and um, just coming from a place of lack of confidence. And yeah, yeah. Just, just before... I actually gave the pitch. I, I, I had the opportunity to watch a couple of other entrepreneurs pitch to the same group. And I was sitting in the back of the room and I was observing kind of the dynamic of what was going on when the investors were interested and when they weren't. And I had this flash of insight that um, literally about 20 minutes before I was supposed to go on, I tore apart my whole, you know, 50 slide PowerPoint deck. And I turned it into about five slides of just a couple of uh, photographs, actually. And I just, instead of doing all the details, I just told the story of just from the heart. I just told the story of how I started the company 
and what the opportunities were. And I basically said, I was looking for the right people to join, to um, be part of this venture and that I would be a good steward of their money and uh, wanted to create something great. And in my 20 minute pitch, I, I raised all the initial capital that I needed um, by having uh, a presentation that just came from a place of sincerity and confidence of saying, look, I'm onto something good. And I told it as sort of a, a narrative as a story without all the, the typical detail of a, a startup pitch. So I, I think just that, that change of going from a place of you know, fear and trying to do lots of detail and all that to just being genuine and confident and saying, look, I'm really onto something here. This thing's taken off um, is, is the part that I think attracted the, the capital that we needed to get off the ground. Oh, I love that story. I've felt that pressure the same, the same way. Here's the exact way you need to do it. And you get mechanical and you even feel like you have to, you know, pretend to a degree that you're somewhere you're not versus just trusting, trusting where you are. And, and here's my story. And here's, you know, people, they're always looking for the thing you're hiding. Yeah. Right. There's that feeling of when things are too polished and whatever, they're like, what are you not telling us? But when you come out and you connect and you tell them, tell them truth, you know, with confidence, right. But you tell them the truth, it causes people to trust you and to lean in and say, all right, well, let's talk more. <laughs> right. Yep. Um, that is so cool, Steve. I love that story. Yeah, it's. I think it's just being genuine and being um, confident in your own, uh, you know, power to do it. To say, like, look, I'm. I've created something good, and I know it's something good, and um, I know where we're moving. So, if you want to come along for the ride, come on, let's go. It's kind of like the the bus is leaving. If you want to come on, this is going to be a fun bus. Uh, it's very different than you know, running around trying to, trying to push people onto a bus, right? Yes. Yes. I love that. Um, well, so tell me about this. What does the company look like today? What, how many people are involved uh, with your company and, and who are you guys serving today? What's the current expression of it? So uh, the company right now has grown to be, uh, we have, we have people around the country in remote offices as well as a, a few rented offices. Um, altogether, there's about 30 full-time employees and we have, um, a, a lot of outsourcing that we do. We outsource, you know, legal and accounting and fulfillment. And, you know, we have a warehouse operation, uh, that we outsource and we have a, a huge network of, um, independent companies that are part of our, uh, ecosystem. So we've got about 300 local logistics companies, um, the, you know, the type of companies that do first mile, last mile deliveries that are all connected into our, our platform. Um, we've got a bunch of long haul trucking companies. We've got integrations with FedEx and UPS. Um, so basically we use technology to tie together not only our own employees uh, that are the, the full timers that are orchestrating things, but we are kind of like an Uber or like an Expedia where we're tying together all the resources of the industry, right? Um, that, that don't have to be our own employees. We have a lot of reach by um, connecting other companies into a technology platform so we can orchestrate things at scale, which would otherwise be impossible to do with our little group of people. Um, so we're continuing to expand that all the time uh, the company's actually had created a uh, logistics platform that's used uh, globally. It, uh, it can handle different languages and character sets. It's being used by companies like Dell uh, all over the world by their employees to orchestrate their uh, return logistics. Um, and so basically we're at a place right now where we're uh, on a growth curve and we're raising some capital um, and really going to blow this thing up to be a much bigger and, um, you know, more robust company that uh, can serve the circular economy of the future. I mean, this, the space that we're in of taking things back and orchestrating the pickup and return of whether it's reusable containers or whether it is used equipment or whether it is recyclable material 
Um, anything to do with reverse and return and reuse and repair, refurbish, all those things are very popular topics in the world right now. Um, you can't turn on the TV or look any, at anything online without seeing something about sustainability. And um, we're right smack in the middle of that. And we feel like we're really at the right place at the right time. So we're, we're looking forward to a lot of uh, really fun growth in the years ahead. Oh, man, I love it. Yeah, it does sound like you guys are poised uh, to really see another explosion of growth. At this size company, now having 30 people, you're getting, you know, outside of that organic size where it gets a little tough right? Like when it's early days and it's a small team, everybody knows each other, trusts each other. Um, what's the biggest challenge of having the company at that size and then scaling to 50 people, 60 people, doubling again? How, how are you experiencing just as a leader of the company this season that the company's in? Right. So that, that is, it's the, it's the biggest challenge right now because uh, as you said, once you get, get to the size where we're at, you start to uh, run out of, you know, the contacts of everybody has a few people that they know from their prior life where they say, Hey, if I ever went into business, boy, I'd like to have that guy as my VP of whatever. Um, and you know, you, you can do that for a while and you can grow something really great and you can have, um, an initial kind of small company culture. And, um, the, the challenge becomes once you start to have to be putting, uh, job postings, you know, online and, and hiring people that are in other uh, locations, other states, other countries, and maintaining the consistency and the culture, um, and also creating uh, measures for holding people accountable uh, and being able to manage an organization. And that's really where we're at right now is we're putting a lot of um, time and thinking into scale. Uh, at in the early stages of the company, you're you know you're focused on just keeping the lights on and and having a viable business and making sure you have enough capital. Uh, we're now getting to the place where we have to uh, professionalize the organization, right? So that means building out the departments that you didn't used to have, uh, building you know hiring people who are not just the right skill set but the right fit from a culture standpoint. Um, and, you know, having the key is you really got to hire some people in key spots that are going to have the management capability to build a team, to communicate effectively, to hold others accountable, to make an organization that really works uh, so that it, it doesn't feel like no one's minding the store, which I think is, is the biggest challenge, especially as a founder. I always feel like I need to be talking to the customer. I need to be knowing what's going on in the industry. I need to be focused on, you know, steering the ship. Um, and if I'm steering the ship from, you know, way up in the tower cockpit, how do I make sure that, you know, the, the people who are, you know, in the engine room are <laughs> making sure the engine is working. And there's all these different roles that have to happen and making sure that they're staffed and there's, um, you know, an organization in place. I think that being a founder, um, if you're if you're anything like me, you're you're used to doing a lot of things yourself. And as you grow, delegating is uh, the biggest challenge. And finding, big, you know, growing an organization is not easy. Finding the people that you can really count on, that you can trust, um, and creating all those roles and responsibilities is is uh, a big big challenge. So that's where we're at right now. Yeah. Yeah. We call it that transition from organic to organized. Yes. And it's like the awkward teenage years of a business. Your baby is growing up. It is not yes. fully an adult out there in the world walking on its own. You're still shepherding a lot of it and it can be awkward in those, those years. And it's, I find it's hard for the founder emotionally, you know, to, it's the fear of if I pass this off or I don't, I'm not looking at this all the time that, you know, it's going to, it's going to fall off the rails. Have yes. you experienced that too? Some of the emotional challenge of delegating, not because there's a technical aspect of it, the right person and clearly communicating the expectations and empowering them and figuring that out. But then there's the emotional part of the fear of letting go of some of those areas. Have you encountered that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, 
you know, as, as a founder, you, you have to rely on some key people that you hire to, to take care of uh, a lot of the, the detail. And you have to, um, first of all, trust, but second of all, create accountability measures so that um, you can rest assured that all the people that you've hired are actually doing what you hired them to do. And uh, that's, that's a, a scary concept when you feel like, especially in the world now of working remotely, um, and there's a lot less accountability measures when people are working from, from home. Um, you, you have to have things in place to make sure that people aren't just um, doing what they want. And that's, that's a real challenge. I, I see it. I mean, we deal with some really large companies as customers, and I see some of these employees that are, they're able to fly under the radar at, you know, even if they work at a huge multinational company, there's a lot of people that have figured out how to, um, you know, <laughs> watch Netflix all day and they're because no one's really holding them accountable at their huge company. And they think it's just great and <laughs> say, hey, you know, I'm uh, I'm working remotely and I'm not doing a damn thing and no one's paying attention. And th that's a big fear as a founder that you don't want that happening in your company, especially when you're under resourced, under capitalized. Um, you want to make sure that every dollar you're spending on payroll is being properly utilized. Yeah. Have you guys found any solutions yet for that issue or are you still in that experimenting? That's the question we're trying to answer phase. Well, there's a lot of different technolo technology tools that are very helpful um, in terms of if you're holding people accountable with using systems that are trackable and, you know, if, if you have, for example, uh, I don't know, remote customer service reps that if they've got to be keying in, you know, their interactions with customers onto the system, well, you, you certainly have some accountability to know what they're doing. But um, at the end of the day, I think there's no replacement for effective management. Um, you have to find effective management. You have to find people that know how to manage people people that have been trained on how to manage people, people that like to manage people. I think one of the biggest uh, mistakes that companies make is they will promote to management people who are good at a thing, good at a task, and make them in charge of the people in that department who do that thing. So for example, take a computer programmer who's the most senior and been around the longest and then make them in charge of the other computer programmers. Well, guess what? Computer programmers don't have any knowledge or inclination to, to manage other people. They want to sit in their room with the door shut and code. And if you put that person in charge of 20 other coders, there's going to be no management there. Um, <laughs> there's going to be no accountability. They're, they're all just going to be working independently. So um, I think it's a, a key lesson to make sure that you're hiring people that know how to manage and they create processes and systems for uh, holding people accountable. There, there are the tool sets all day long. You know, you can use tools like, uh, you know, Trello or, and there's management systems like Agile or whatever, where you can record things. But if you're, if you don't have somebody driving those tools, they're, they're inert. So there's no substitute for good. So good. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. You know, tools are only as effective as, as the people that are wielding the tools, right? Absolutely. And you've got to have people that have the desire. That's the first thing you mentioned is like, you may be promoting someone that doesn't even really have the desire to lead people. Um, and then you got to match that desire with, with capability. That I actually have the capability to effectively lead people, you know, not just manage, but lead them. And that's a real challenge, especially for, for growing companies. Uh, like you said, often hiring or, or, promoting, which isn't always the wrong move, but promoting a star player into now a coach position. And yeah. that can be a painful transition for them. I remember uh, one of the lessons that I learned a good influence uh, back when I, before I went out on my own as an entrepreneur, um, one of the things I remember observing at the company I worked for, um, I worked for a big engineering company that got a contract uh, with the government, did a lot of government contracting and um, to run that contract, they were going to need, you know, a couple hundred engineers and employees to work on this job. And the president of the company hired in 
from the outside a Navy commander who had previously run a battleship to run this organization. And there were engineering people on the inside of the company that were like, what? He doesn't know anything about engineering. He, he like, this is an engineering contract. He, he's not even an engineer. Why don't you take one of the senior engineers and put him in charge? And the president of the company said, this guy could run a battleship, thousands of people on it. He doesn't need to know about engineering. He knows how to manage people at scale with precision. And that's the person you want to put in charge of that huge organization is somebody that just manages other people all day long. They're, they're not looking to, to close, you know, shut the door and, and code. He, he's looking to, you know, create a management structure. So that was actually really successful. And that stuck with me. Um, and, you know, I, I want to make sure that I always make the same kind of choice of hiring people that, that manage teams uh, if you're going to have them manage a team. Oh, I love that example. And sometimes that person with the outside, no industry experience, uh, it has even the fresh perspective often, the, the kind of objectivity from, from not having been so close to the product or close to the industry that they come in and, uh, and, and really see things in a, in a new, fresh way that's really helpful, right? Yeah, absolutely. We, we actually did that uh, as, as a company that one of the things we recognized about the logistics industry is it tended to be um, customer service was not great in terms of the world of trucking and freight and, you know, uh, parcel delivery and whatever. Generally, customer service was kind of um, just not polished and a little rough. And that sort of was the industry standard. Well, as we built the company, um, you know, the person that I sought to to come in to lead our organization actually came from the hospitality industry. And his background was in, you know, managing high-end hotels where people have to be polite and people have to be trained. And so we kind of brought a whole higher level of customer service and, um, you know, the, the customer touch, uh, it feels much more like what you'd be used to at a at a nice hotel or a restaurant, as opposed to the typical kind of rough, um, you know, trucking industry kind of feel. And people really appreciate that. They want to talk to people who are, if they're in customer service, that they're trained, that they're polite, that they've, um, you know, uh, had some background in how to talk to a customer, as opposed to just, you know, throwing anybody who's not skilled on the desk. So anyway, that, that's Love that was that. just the example of, bringing in somebody from another industry who can actually add a really good dimension to what you're doing. Cause they're not looking at it like everybody else. For sure. And sometimes they walk in and the, the most helpful thing is so obvious to them yet. It's completely in the blind spot of everybody else who's been there day to day. Right. Yes. And that's like you said, somebody in the hospitality background comes in and is like, how are we missing this? How are we not taking this interaction more seriously or applying a few simple you know, techniques or mindsets about the customer that can really elevate your, your service above all your competitors who aren't doing that. Right. Absolutely. I mean, there's, is all those little things when you look at it through the lens of, um, you know, customer experience and which is so, so important. And when you think about, you know, anybody would rather talk to, uh, you know, the concierge at a nice hotel compared to talking to somebody who, uh, you know, is, is smoking a cigarette and, and sipping coffee and, and swearing, right. Which is a lot of what you get in the, in the freight industry. Uh, That's right. So, yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a very different vibe. Man, even uh, I'll just tell him actually my dad, this, uh, I met a local mechanic that was recommended to me by a friend because he trusted him. And I brought him into work on my wife's car instead of taking it to the dealership, which I already had. And, I cannot, I cannot uh, o overestimate the value of somebody you can trust in that kind of industry, right? Yes. Like somebody, and he shot me straight. I was about to spend $2,500 on these repairs. He walked in, looked at everything and said, you don't need any of them and right. charged me nothing and walked away. And I said, hey, I'm saving your number. You're my guy. As long as I'm right. in this town, <laughs> you're my guy, yeah. right? Trust and sometimes right. we overlook, we overlook just like the trust factor that yes. people are, are, are begging for in whatever industry we're, we're, we're encountering. And so you guys 
building that trust, taking that customer relationship seriously, I'm sure has paid off on the lifetime value of the customer as well as the referrals that are likely happening. Yes, absolutely. And, and that goes back to what we were talking about before of confidence, right? If you've got some confidence, you're going to start attracting the right, you're going to attract and retain customers, right? You're going to attract and retain the right employees. If you know that what you're doing is the right way to do it. If you're, you know, you're upfront, you're candid, uh, you, people can tell uh, if you're full of it, you know, and um, I think people just generally have sort of that BS detector, right? That they're, they're looking for, do I trust this company? Do I believe they'll, they'll do the right thing for me? Uh, whether that's your auto mechanic or anybody else, you're, you are definitely looking for that trust factor. And I think it just comes from that honest place of confidence that people can, can tell if you're the real thing or not. I love that, Steve. All right, my friend, we're gonna jump into our lightning round questions. Thank you so much for your time today. I want to get to these five questions that we've asked every founder so far uh, since we've done the podcast. So question number one, if you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would that message be? Uh, that message would be to serve the customer. And, and what I mean by serve the customer is a very important distinction. And that is to serve the individual first. Um, more than their organization, right? I, this, it's a key thing that I've learned is that people are looking for you to solve their problem. If you solve their problem, you'll solve their company's problem. Um, if you go at it by trying to solve their company's problem first, and you think you know how to do that, um, it will sometimes fly in the face of what the individual who works at that company is trying to do, right? And I found that there's a lot more success in making the individuals, the individuals lives easier at, uh, at a company or whoever your customer is, um, than trying to look at it through the lens of like, well, you know, well, I'm doing this, this, uh, greater good thing here that you don't understand. I'm helping your company out. And they're <laughs> like, yeah, you know what? I don't want you to help my company. I want you to help me out. I'm telling you what I need. And so listen very closely to, your customer and make sure you understand that the customer is the person that you're dealing with, not necessarily the organization. Oh, I love that. That is super helpful. All right. Number two, what is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? And also what was the worst? I would say the single best piece of advice that I have gotten, um, is, uh, and I've heard this many times from uh, a wonderful gentleman who's um, a shareholder in the company and one of our early investors is your job is to find somebody to do your job. And as a founder, that's, I mean, that's, that's specific advice to a founder. And what that means is not continuing to do everything. When you start off and you're a one person company, you're handling everything. And uh, you get attached to doing a lot of these tasks and little micro projects that um, you can find somebody else to do. So learning to delegate. And um, you know, this, this person who said, says that to me is always reminding me of like, okay, what's, what's on your desk right now? Why are you so busy? Why do you still have all these tasks? Your job is to find somebody to do your job. And if you've got any task that comes across your desk that could be done by somebody who, is, who you can hire or who makes less money than you or who uh, has the bandwidth, don't continue to do that task yourself. Um, take the time, train somebody else to do it, get them responsible for it and hand it off. And ultimately where you want to get to as a founder is to where your desk is clear of the day-to-day -day operational stuff that you've created an organization and you can sit back in your chair and think. And when you're thinking, um, make sure you're thinking big and that you're thinking about what you really want. You know, if, uh, if you can clear your desk of that day-to-day -day by finding somebody to do your job, that's gonna allow you the mental space to be able to create the next level of your, your company. So Absolutely. that's definitely the best it's advice that, I've gotten. It's getting into that highest leverage activity, right? For you as the founder versus yes. getting stuck in the the, the lower dollar per hour activities. 
Okay, how about the worst? How about what was the worst? Uh, I would say the the worst is, um, you know, there's always been people who will tell you that you need to go set up all kinds of administration and basically all this infrastructure before you have a customer. Uh, because they look at it like, well, you're going to need this for when you have all these customers. So, you you know, those are the people who want you to focus on, um, you know, having a process for this or that or having, um, you know, governance or procedure or an employee handbook or an expense expense process or, you know, having office space or anything else that's that's kind of um, administrative or governance to focus on that before you have a big line of customers is putting the cart before the horse. And I think a lot of people do that because it, it, you're, it feels like you're doing the right thing. It feels like you're, there's activity. So you're creating activity instead of progress. Right. And really what you need is the progress. You need to be able to say, Hey, I've got a bunch of customers. I've got things that are, are happening here. I've got customers to serve and now I've got to catch up with, you know, I don't know, renting an office or, or whatever it is, or, or creating an employee handbook. Um, you know, we, we were sort of misguided early on of, you know, creating all these like policies and procedures, employee handbooks and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, wait a minute, we don't have any employees yet. And, but there are people right, that right. tell you, well, you've got to set it up like this because, you, you know, by the time you have employees, you got to have this all set up. It's like, well, I just wasted all this time focusing on that instead of talking to my customer. And finding out what does my customer actually need to put me in a position to have employees. So I think a lot of startups go out, and especially if they are lucky or maybe unlucky enough to get funding, um, they'll go out and be kind of I call it playing house, right? Where you, you're setting up shop and you're you're renting offices and you're buying desks and you're buying computers and you're hiring receptionists and you're you're doing all this stuff and you're like, you know, I don't have a customer yet. I've got a, I've got an employee lounge with a pool table and a foosball machine and you know, whatever, but I don't, I don't have a customer. Yeah. So um, I think that's a, a big place where a lot of, a lot of founders can misstep. Uh, we did a little of it, but we always, you know, got back on track. So. Ah, I love that. Yeah. You add, when you do that, you add so much overhead and unnecessary costs and structures and things that can stifle growth yes. but in your mind you think it's going to enhance growth right and really it's you avoiding the that what you talked about all the way at the beginning when you mentioned that risk tolerance and just saying like let's go build it first like let's trust ourselves let's be scrappy let's go out there and get the customers and then once we get the customers we'll know what we need to to put in place and we'll yeah. we'll figure it out as we go and that takes a lot of trust in yourself versus feeling like you have to have all your ducks in a row you have to have all your processes figured out and then I'll go sell it when yeah. you're likely, you likely need to pivot anyways and you won't yeah. know where you need to pivot until you actually get your customers. Right. Yeah. Well, I think where a lot of that comes from, and this is a key point too, that I wanted to make is that a lot of founders or entrepreneurs will, you know, they'll go out and look for advisors or, you know, some, some person who, has a big resume to say, well, I want to put this person on my advisory board or directors or whatever. And oftentimes they'll find somebody who has a big resume at a big company. And it looks good to say like, oh, well, this person from this huge company is on my board of advisors and they're going to basically, you know, somehow tell me how to be a big company. Well, what you actually find is people who come from big companies that don't have entrepreneurial or growth company experience will often be the ones who tell you to do all that stuff. They'll be telling you, you know, well, this is how we did it at, uh, you know, XYZ Corp, which is 50,000 employees. And you need to be doing that. And you're like, well, wait a minute, I don't have a customer yet. I need sales. Like I need, I need a product. I need a, uh, I, I need to find a market yes. fit. And they're, they're telling you to write your employee handbook. Right. And it's like, well, I'm not there yet. So I, I would just <laughs> caution founders against, you know, be very careful about who you bring in in terms of, um, you know, what's their background? Do they really know how to build a company, build a team, uh, build a product? Um, you know, there's the right stage of like for us right now, 
when we're getting into that that stage of like professionalizing the company, then you want to have people that know how to run big stuff. But if you do that when you're you're only one or two people and you start bringing in people, to me that's like it's hiring a, a 747 pilot before you even have the little Cessna plane, right? If you hire that 747 pilot, they're going to tell you, I know how to fly a 747. But if you're not flying that thing, um, you need somebody who's going to help you get the little Cessna off the ground first, um, which is a, a very, very different skill set. And I think it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that you know, you're somebody you know of over here at this huge company is going to be able to help your startup. And usually that's not the case. So good, Steve. Couldn't agree more. Okay, question number three. What causes you the most stress or worry currently leading your organization? Hmm. I would say it's the whole issue of uh, holding people accountable. Um, now that we're getting to that place of there's a lot of people involved, there's a lot of different positions um, and making sure that you have the controls in place to make sure people are busy, um, to make sure you're, you know, for example, you may have a lopsided work distribution where you have one team is overloaded and can't keep up and another team is doesn't have enough to do. And it's because the management structure is not taking note of what's happening. And if, if they don't have accountability measures, they may think that um, everybody's busy, right? And as I've learned from observing some of these people we see at huge companies that are able to literally hide, just hide, didn't do nothing. That um, it's almost like that movie Office Space with the guy with his dream of yes. nothing, right? If you can find yeah. a way to hide and come in the side door so that the boss doesn't see you, and you know that kind of thing. But it's even even bigger now with working from home. Uh, if there aren't accountability measures in place, you can be just lighting an enormous amount of money on fire um, <laughs> with uh, people that you've got on payroll that are not getting handed anything to do, and they're not going to raise their hand and say, "Hey, I've got tons of." bandwidth over here, um, they're going to watch Netflix until you can give them something to do. So uh, that I would say is, is the biggest source of, of worry for me at this stage. And that's why we're putting a lot more um, emphasis on, on growth and uh, building, cool. building, building teams with accountability measures in place. Love it. Okay. Question number four. What is your BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal for this company? Our big, hairy, audacious goal is to be the platform uh, that is drives the circular economy of the future. Um, we want to have a global platform that uh, connects an enormous amount of parties that are part of this um, <clears throat> reverse supply chain and basically the goal for us is to make um, return and reverse logistics just as easy to accomplish as forward. Um, I think there's been an enormous amount of um, emphasis, investment, and infrastructure on distribution. You know, companies like Amazon who can make things appear on your doorstep really fast. Uh, regardless of how efficient or environmentally friendly that might be. It's like they're just catering to, hey, I want to be able to push the button and boom, my thing shows up at my doorstep and maybe same day or next day. Um, we're focused on, we want to make it just as easy to, to order that type of a service, but to have it be in a more sustainable circular fashion where maybe you need your, you know, uh, reusable containers that you ate dinner with tonight picked up and recycled, right? I mean, we're, there's those kind of things that are coming that, uh, you know, maybe you'll be getting DoorDash uh, that's in a, in a reusable container and um, you're not just throwing it out and you need that same kind of capacity to push a button and, ha and say, hey, all my dirty dishes need to be picked up. Those are the kind of things mm. that are coming in the future. Um, <clears throat> and maybe that needs to be done in an electric vehicle. Right. I mean, those are the, the issues that we're addressing. So uh, in general, our big, hairy, audacious goal is to close the loop of the circular economy and to start changing how things flow from being linear 
uh, to being circular. And it's a, it's a, it's a heavy lift that's going to take years, but it's, it's sort of the future of what um, the economy needs to look like in, in order to create a more uh, sustainable, not only economy, but, but planet, right? I mean, there's all the issues around climate change and, uh, you know, everything, everything to do with uh, making the world a better place. So we've got kind of a big picture, long-term goal of uh, trying to close that gap. Man, I love that. And, and I'm sure you've heard this as well, but just to encourage you, one of the things I've heard in terms of indicators of a successful business is that you've found a problem worth solving and that, that problem is complex enough that it can't be solved overnight yep. and that you feel personal commitment to go on the journey of solving the problem, right? Yes. And that, that's what you guys are doing. Worthwhile problem, complex problem, and you guys are committed to solving it. Uh, I see success, massive success in your future. Yeah, thank you. I, I think the key for us is also finding, you know, going back to what we talked about at the beginning of finding people who are sympathetic to that cause that understand it. I think one of the biggest uh, obstacles in, in the world of, uh, you know, things like circular economy, recycling, things that are sustainability oriented is in the past, they, there's been too much emphasis on how much money can I make from this? Like how, how, you know, fast can you make money? So a company, a company like ours, for example, you know, we don't want to have a, a capital partner. That's like, how fast can you just grow this business and crank money out of it? It's like, well, that's not the only objective that we're trying to do here. We're not just trying to blast the numbers through the moon and, and sign up, you know, uh, a bazillion customers. We're, we're trying to do things the right way. That's the whole thing of a stain, a sustainability, right? So a lot of businesses that are just not sustainable at all because they try to grow too fast, you know, growth at all costs. And I think, um, you know, you want to have the right people on board that understand that this is a complicated problem and we're trying to fix it for real, right? We're trying to fix it inherently. Uh, so, you know, a good example of that for us is, our delivery network of, of um, you know, trucking companies, they're all right now on, on traditional combustion engines and diesel powered trucks, right? There's a big lift to, to move them to the world of, of sustainably powered vehicles, right? Electric vehicles and, you know, all these deliveries should be happening, happening in a carbon neutral manner. Um, same thing with packaging, right? You, you place an order today on an Amazon or a Walmart, it's gonna come in a big cardboard box with lots of plastic. Um, and getting them, getting, getting the world to move to a, a model where, you know, maybe your Amazon order comes in a reusable box, like a, a suitcase kind of a thing that you take your item out and then put it out and somebody picks it up. Right. Um, we were able to do it in the past, uh, you know, years ago with milk bottles. Right. So, I mean, why, why can't that be done with all the technology today? So, um, anyway, these are, they're big problems that are going to take years to fix, but they've got to be fixed. So you got to start somewhere. Love it. Okay. Question number five, this is our creative question. Have fun with it. If you could hop into a DeLorean and go back to the past and you get to tell yourself just one thing out the driver's side window, as you drive by, when would you go back and what would you tell that younger version of yourself? Um, I would go back to, uh, I would say just after I started the company from the standpoint of, well, I, I, that's when I would go back. And I, what I would tell myself is spend your time talking to your customers. I think what often happens with startups is you, you begin by talking to a customer. And then as soon as you get a little traction, you shift your focus to all this internal stuff and you start, that's what I was talking about before of that, the bad advice of saying like, spend all your time focusing on, on infrastructure and administration. And um, it's very easy to start thinking like, well, I'm, I'm in business now. I've got a customer and then you're, you're setting up shop with all this other stuff and you're not continuing to talk to the customer. Um, and that's where I think you can get really off track and spending all your time just talking to the people that you work with and doing all this, uh, setting up of things. <laughs> and meanwhile, you're not talking to more customers. I would tell myself, 
talk to the customer every single day, get out there and talk to the customer, find, you know, find people who you can hire, who can help keep up with what's needed, but don't spend your time focusing on that yourself, especially as a founder, um, you know, get out there and talk to the customer. Man, so good. Steve, this has been a fantastic conversation. So valuable, so much insight and wisdom. Thank you for making time out of your busy schedule to be here with us today. It was a true pleasure. Thank you very much, Drew. I appreciate it. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.